joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. And so we started a series called Abusing Privilege, which is going to be a probably a pretty harsh, at least in regards to how I normally preach, a pretty harsh sermon series because Amos is being harsh for a purpose because people have abused the privilege of belonging to God in that time. And people are abusing the privilege of belonging to God in this time. We take what we've been given and we're misusing it. We're misrepresenting it. We're not doing what we've been called to do, which is to be a blessing and to care for others. And because we have this blessing inside of us, God expects us to use this blessing inside of us to bless other people. Amen? And so when we don't do that, we are literally abusing the privilege that we have. And so I want to talk about that today with a sermon titled, The Benefit and Cost of Privilege. Last week we started, like I said, we started talking about the nations, the people that don't belong to God, and the people that do belong to God. And so there's essentially two kinds of people in the world. Those that do and those that don't. That's such a simple truth, right? There was a young man who gave his life to the Lord here a couple of years ago off of that one statement because he didn't want to be the one that doesn't. Isn't that amazing? That the Holy Spirit could speak through such simple things. But he, anyway, so Amos says there's the nations, the people that don't belong to God, and the people that do belong to God. But all of us know that God exists. Whether you belong to God or don't belong to God, according to Romans chapter 1, you should know by creation that there's a God, and you should know by your moral code, your innate moral code, that there is a God. People say, well, well, well nobody's good with, with, but without Jesus. That's true, but you still have a moral code. Nobody had to tell you that killing your neighbor was wrong. You just know that. Now, you probably, if you've done that, you've probably ignored that or had to have ignored that, but there's an innate understanding, even in the unbeliever, that God exists because if you have a moral code, then there has to be a moral code giver, right? It stands to reason. Somebody had to put that in you. And then there's the believer who should know that there is a God for both of those reasons and because we've been given the revelation of the will of God, which is the word of God. And so either way, we're responsible and accountable to God for what we know, and that's that God exists. So we talked about that last week. Today, I want to talk to you about something a little bit different. Today, I want to talk to you about how because we are privileged to be called, much is expected of us. Paused on purpose. I need you to listen to me. We take our responsibility largely with a grain of salt. God has commanded great things from us because of the privilege, because of the grace we've been extended, because of the revelation that we have. There's a story in the book of Luke that talks about a slave owner, and he leaves a slave in charge, and that slave in charge, not expecting his slave owner, master, to come back, 
begins to drink and party and do all the stuff he's not supposed to be doing, starts abusing the other slaves that he's been put in stewardship over. And then the master comes back unexpectedly. This, of course, is a picture of Jesus Christ coming back for his church. He says this. He says, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone, listen to this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. What's he saying there? He is saying this. Punishment is proportional to privilege. Which scares me. Should frighten us. Or at least put us, like we talked about last week, in a place of reverence. Where we understand if punishment is uh, proportional to, to privilege, then our lack of reverence, our lack of paying attention to the calling that God has placed on our life, our lack of glorifying Him in everything that we do, because we should know, we're going to be punished greater than those who don't belong to Him. And so I'm talking to the church today. And I need you to listen to me. Because I want to see every person here. I speak from passion for one reason. Because I want to see everyone here, everybody that ever darkens the door of Launch Point Church, everybody that's ever influenced by anybody that's ever darkened the door of Launch Point Church to be in heaven with us. This is our goal. This is the reason why we exist, so that people can come to know God. But because we know God, there is an expectation of excellence in us and from us. And when we don't meet that standard, the punishment is proportional to our privilege. Which is a little, kind of freaks me out a little. But you know what it does? It keeps me reverent before the Lord. So today I want to ask the, answer the question, how and why have we been privileged? If we're abusing privilege, which we talked about last week and the judgment that's cast upon it, how and why do we abuse privilege? And I'm going to do that out of chapter 3 of Amos today. And I'm going to read the entire chapter. There's only 15 verses. But I need you to pay attention. Hear this word, which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. I want to, I want to stop right there real quick before I go any further. I'll get to explaining the text in a moment. But I don't want you to check out because you've heard a word that you think doesn't pertain to you. Where it says, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. That's you. That's me. That's us. We are the sons of Israel. He was talking to the Jews at this time, but by, Paul tells us in the book of Romans that we've been grafted in to the promise through Christ Jesus. And so when he's speaking to Israel, he's also speaking to us. I don't, I don't believe in replacement theology where the Jews no longer hold the promise. They still hold the promise. What I do say is that we've been grafted in, and so we also have the promise. And so when God is speaking to Israel, He's speaking to you specifically and to us congregationally. So let me start over. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which He brought up from the land of Egypt. 
You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. That freaks me out, man. And he starts asking seven questions. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does the lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? Is a trumpet, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not a people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Verse 9. Proclaim in the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the lands of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumult within her and the oppression in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. I know it's very confusing verbiage. is the reason why we're going to take the time to talk about it. Verse 11, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will put down your strength from you, and your citadels will be, will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away. But the corner of a bed and the corner of a couch, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord of God, the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on that day I will punish Israel's transgressions. I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. That sounds like a pretty serious judgment. Let's talk about what it means. I'm going to make several points. The first point being, we are privileged because He chose us. We are privileged because He chose us. He chose us for a reason. Did you know He chose you for a reason? But can you ask, answer the question, what that reason is? I told you a moment ago that we were grafted in to the vine, or to the branch, through Christ Jesus. Which means we have been grafted into the promise of Abraham. So why did God choose Abraham? Because if we could figure out why God chose Abraham, then we could figure out why God chose us. So let me ask you the question. Why did God choose Abraham? You're thinking, well, Abraham was a man of faith. He wasn't a man of faith until God declared himself to him. Why did God choose Abraham? Because he loved the Lord. He didn't love the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us in Joshua, Joshua makes the declaration that uh, Abraham's father and his ancestors were worshipers of idols. You know what that means? It means he didn't love the Lord. That means he grew up generationally worshiping idols. That means he was a heathen amongst heathens. And had God not intervened in his life, he would have died a heathen amongst heathens. There was nothing special about Abraham 
that God, while searching the earth, stopped and looked at Abraham and said, no, that guy's got a little bit of faith. Maybe, just maybe, if I work with him for a while, he'll be able to accomplish. This might actually just work out. He'll be able to accomplish what I've called him to. That's not how any of that worked. So why Abraham? Because we have to answer that before we answer the question, why us? And here's the answer. Y'all ready for this? Blow your mind. Because he wanted to. Man, let me tell you, that should, that should make your mouth pop open. The creator God of the universe, the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, omnipresent God, the God that created you and can kill you, both with a thought in his head or a snap of his fingers, decided to choose you for no other reason than he loved you. And that makes me all fuzzy inside. Deuteronomy tells us this. 7. 6 through 8 says this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you. Because you were more in number than any other, any other peoples. For you were the, loaf, the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of a, by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so he answers the question, why did God choose you? Same reason he chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Because he loved you. Because he wanted to bless you. And ultimately, he needed a, a lineage, a pure lineage, through which Jesus Christ himself could come into the world to save the world. This is why he called you. Because he loves you. Because he wants to bless you. And because through your proclamation of faith, other people will come to know who Jesus is. Where do you stand on that scale? Where do your actions cause you to fall on that line are you living in such a way that we deserve to have been chosen are we taking the blessing without accepting the responsibility if we are we've abused the privilege that god has given us everybody see where i'm going i think i'm laying it out as clearly as plainly as i can god chose us but in chose choosing us he expects us to be a blessing to others he didn't choose you because of your intellect. Praise the Lord. He didn't praise you because you're good, or he didn't choose you because you're good looking. Praise the Lord. He chose you because he wanted to. So many people in the world today are struggling with self-worth. They social media has created this tumultuous storm of craziness where kids and adults alike have to find their value in how many likes they get on social media or how many how many hearts they get on instagram let me tell you god didn't create you for that god created you to know one truth he chose you because he loves you which is the reason to prove that love he sent jesus christ according to the word and that's so good ain't it mama 
but we have a responsibility to that love. The Bible says he chose us. He chose us before the foundations of the earth. And that before he chose us, we were dead in our transgressions. But we have a responsibility. We have house rules. How many of you guys, I grew up with my pawpaw. Most of you guys know that. My pawpaw was a Korean War veteran. He got shot in the Korean War. He healed up, served the rest of his time as a Marine Corps drill sergeant. He was not a... He was a loving man, not a real gracious fella. Very pointed, if you know what I mean. Right? And my papa used to have a saying, and maybe many of you guys have heard something similar or said something similar. My house, my rules. You're going to live under this roof? You're going to do what I say. You're going to eat from this table? You're going to eat what I give you. Right? So there's house rules. There's expectations of you if you belong to the family of God. And the Bible says here in Amos chapter 3, that's exactly what we are. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family. We are a family. And because we have a family, we belong to a family, we have to adhere to family rules. When my papa told you to do something, you didn't ask why. You just did what he said, how he said, for as long as he said and there was consequences for not doing it. And my grandfather was imperfect. God is perfect. How much more so, or how much more true is it for God than my grandfather? I can remember one time my papa took me, took me cutting wood. Back when people did such a thing, you know. And I could, I was so excited. And this is why I was excited, because I was a runt. I was the runt of my family, if you can believe that. I was, at this time, I was probably fifth or sixth grade. I graduated high school at 165 pounds, so you can imagine what I was when I was 11. You know? Looked like a stick with two eyeballs hanging off of it and a big nose. I was told I was born with this nose. I grew into it. So I was not, I was not only little, I was ugly, apparently. But... Because I was a runt, my papa would never take me to do stuff like that. He would always take my older brother or my uncle who was strong. And I'd have to stay home. And when I stayed home, I stayed with Granny in the kitchen and made dinner. And so I was made to feel like less because all the guys were out doing stuff. And I was stuck in the house doing women's work. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But that's where I that was, so it was my struggle. And so he asked me one day, he said, he said, Jim Bob, you want to go cut wood? I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I mean, I, I got all excited. I got up early, man. We, we went somewhere. We just drove essentially to the other side of the property. He cut a tree down. He was pretty efficient at it. And then ch chopped it into a bunch of pieces. Removed all the limbs off of it. I moved all the leaf, leafy limbs out of the way while he was cutting it into pieces. And he said, all right, this is what I want you to do. He goes, I'm going to go back to the house. I just need you to load it up in the truck. I'll be back in a, however long he gave me, an hour and a half or whatever, to pick you up and drive the truck back. And I said, all right. I was, I was excited about it. Until I picked up the first piece of wood and realized why they left me back at the house. Because wood's heavy. And so I pick up a piece, and he didn't split it. It was a big, round tree like this, and he cut it into pieces like this. I guess he planned on splitting it later. 
And so I'm all kind of rolling it to the truck, and I up the side of the truck, back when they didn't really care what you did to a truck because a farm truck was a farm truck, so it didn't matter. And I dump one in, I get another one in, I get another one in. I didn't get it done in the hour and a half, he told me. And he told me, he said, that's all right. We'll just cut some more next weekend. And I was all, all right, right on. I thought he was going to be mad. Next weekend, I get up, I'm excited. What I didn't know is that Friday, because this was Saturday, Friday, he went and cut some trees down. Did y'all catch that? Trees down. In a valley. He said, pick all these up, stack them over there in the truck. He had somebody come get him. They drove off, left me there all day. Because I didn't do what I was supposed to do the first time. I got to learn the lesson that you do what you're told, when you're told, how you're told. And you make it happen in the amount of time you've been given to do it. And my, my papa, as much as I love him, was imperfect. I think God deserves that and much more from us. Don't you? If God has chosen us to be part of his family and said these are the if-then rules of belonging to my family, who are we to not get that done? How much ubris and arrogance does it take to not get that done? More than I can fathom. And so for this reason, for all of these reasons, we deserve judgment. But you know what? There's an there's a even greater promise. And that's that God is long-suffering. By the standard I've just given you, if I were to ask you to raise hands, and I'm not going to, how many of us would have to raise our hand that we haven't met the standard? All of us. Because the standard's high. But God is long-suffering. There's a beautiful promise in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. It's some count slowness. He's talking about the promise of returning for his people. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, for, but for all to come to repentance. Did you catch that? God is long-suffering. You think he doesn't want to come back for you right now? Of course he does. He loves you. He, he chose you. I just talked to you about all this stuff. He sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, so he could spend eternity with you. But he hasn't come back yet. You know why? Because there's still some people that need to be saved. And he's long-suffering and patient enough that he's going to save everyone that's willing to be saved right before he comes back. And so I praise God for this promise that God is long-suffering. And Amos says the same thing. He says it much differently. But he says, listen, you deserve as the family of God to be judged because you haven't met the family rules. But I need you to understand, God has been long-suffering with you. How many of you guys ever grew up, or maybe you did it yourself? I can remember the first time I ever heard this. I was in a grocery store, and I heard a mama say, I'm going to give you a count of three, and you better do whatever that is. Anybody ever done or seen anything like that? I can remember thinking, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. That mom ought to be slapped in the teeth. Because that's what would happen to me when I was a kid. You know what one, two, three looked like? One, two, 
three. And by the time three was over, I was done doing what I was doing. And so every time somebody would do that, that I was in a relationship with and could speak to them, I said, don't do that. Don't tell your kids one, two, three. Just, just punish them. They know the rule. And then I read the book of Amos. Did you know this is exactly what the long-suffering God does to us? We'll give you a count of three, boy. And on three, judgment's coming. This is what he says in these seven questions. Let me explain them to you. One, this is, this is the one, two, three. One, God offers a warning. Verses three and four says, Do two men not walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does the lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? He is saying, listen, you've been given a warning. You agreed to walk with me. You said, yeah, you'll be my God. Yeah, I'll be your people. But then you didn't keep that promise. He's asking, how can we walk in agreement if you're walking in sin? He's given us that, that first count, which is always a warning, that provocation by the Spirit that goes, man, you shouldn't do that. When he's talking about the lion and the, and the young lion, he's essentially asking him, do I not have a reason to growl or to roar against you? Don't I have a right to do what I'm about to do? You need to pay attention. One, He's declaring that punishment is due because you said you belong to me. And I'm going to give you a warning. Two, comes calamity. What most of us refer to as trials. Verse 5 and 6 says this, Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground and then there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? What does all that mean? He's saying, there's a trap waiting for you. And I'm going to trap you in that trap until you submit and do what I tell you to do. This is calamity. This is trial. And then he talks about the, the trumpet and how people are terrified of the trumpet. This is a warning. I liken it much today's like today. I don't know. Back when I was a younger man, Wilson County was much more rural, and so people did a lot of trapping of different animals, rabbits and raccoons and all that. And I don't know, has anybody ever seen a snap trap? The open up pressure tension snap trap. So a snap trap is what they primarily use because if it damaged the animal, it didn't matter. They were going to kill it anyway. So there wasn't a whole lot of live trapping going on back in the day. And I can remember going with Willie B, a guy I used to work with, to check his, check his traps. We'd walk down the creek bed and we'd come across a raccoon or a, a squirrel or a rabbit or whatever it is he had baited the trap for. And that thing would be terrified. This thing came into his life unexpectedly and snatched him up. Terrified, unable to think, bouncing all over the place trying to get away. I've even seen raccoons try to chew their own leg off. 
And so in the two, God's given us that kind of trial. He's saying, listen, like a bird in a trap, I know I'm going to send to you the thing that causes you to pay attention. And it's going to be terrifying. And you're going to want to chew your own leg off to get out of it. But I'm sending it to you for your own good. I'm going to blow a trumpet. There's been a trumpet blown so that you'll be terrified. I can remember being in Iraq in 1991. And we were on a perimeter in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And we had WMD sensors because there was a threat that we were, that Osama bin Laden was going to, not Osama bin Laden, uh, Saddam Hussein was going to gas American soldiers. And so there were sensors that would suck in the air. And if there was something other than air in them, the siren would go off. And I can remember being out there in the middle of nowhere, and they had showed us the videos of what it looks like when, when somebody gets nerve gauge and nerve agent or gas placed in their body, how they tremble in it. It's just a horrible thing. So when those si- those sirens went off, man, we were terrified. God is trying to terrify us. Now that speaks against a lot of people's theology, because we say God would never do anything like that. Those things aren't good exactly what God promises us that there will be trial well God won't send that trial turn to chapter 4 and let me prove to you different verse 6 I gave you cleanness of teeth in your city you know what that means today cleanness of teeth is all right on we got healthy teeth back then it means there wasn't any food to put in your mouth so your teeth wouldn't get dirty talking about I caused you to be hungry I withheld the rain from you and would not send it even to another city. Verse 9, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew. Verse 10, I sent a plague amongst you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword. I made the stench of your camp. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Can I tell you, and I don't think it's a stretch, and you don't have to be any super spiritual dude to see it, This is where we're at right now. We're in our number two count. Look at the world. People are terrified. Trials are everywhere. Nothing is certain except for uncertainty. No peace, nothing but chaos and anarchy. Don't think for a second that God couldn't have caused that to happen for the greater good of causing you to get back and look back at him. Now what I will tell you. Because I don't want to leave you messed up. Is God can do that and does. But he is never responsible for moral evil. He will never tempt you to sin. The Bible says he can't tempt you to sin. Because there's no sin in him. But he is sovereign and can control all things. And will use all things. To ensure that you stay with him and belong to him. Or to bring you back. Should you wander from him. I don't know about you guys. But he's used trials on more than one occasion to bring me back to center. Center. C-E-N-T-E-O. And then finally, number three. The lion roars. Verse 8, he says, of chapter 3. He says, the lion has roared. So they're at three. The people Amos is speaking to is at three. Or at three. 
Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Judgment's here. It's going to happen. The lion has roared. God got to three. Are we willing to let God get to three today? Or are we going to turn back and go to Him? Because the Bible tells us in verses 11 through 15 that they're what he's going to do in that judgment. And he's going to do the same thing to us. Because we are the house of Israel. We are the people that belong to God, grafted in according to the book of Romans. I'm trying to be very pointed with you today because I, I don't want you to slip and fall. I don't want you to get snared in a trap and caught up and, and be terrified. I don't want you the lion to roar against you. I don't want the lion to roar against me. I believe God calls us to something better. We see this... One, two, three verbiage. Hosea was a prophet in the same time that Amos was. And he was preaching to the same people. God sent two preachers to Israel at this time. And both of them were saying the same thing. Hosea said it, or, yeah, Hosea said it differently. He said, first God's going to come at you like a moth. That, that, that still small voice, that thing that's trying to get your attention but you're not paying attention to. And then he's going to come as an eagle. When an eagle flies across a barnyard, everything flees in terror. And then ultimately he's going to come as a lion, which is the same thing that Amos said. There's a pattern here, guys. Warning first. Calamity second. Judgment third. And what I want to tell you is that even though we are privileged, we are not protected. When we get to the place of judgment. I'm going to read 14 and 15 to you. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions. I will also punish the altars of Bethel. Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off. And they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish. And the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, on that day, when judgment does come, there'll be no place for you to hide. No place that you can run from the wrath of God. Even at your own altars. See, there was a tradition at the time that if you could run to the altar and grab the horn of the altars, that you had sanctuary there. You could make your case there. But God said, even at the altar, there'll be no case made for you. There'll be no sanctuary made for you because the time for repentance will have been over by then. And then he continues, he says, not only that, but your money and your possessions when he's talking about I'll smite the winter house and the summer house. I told you guys last week that this was a time of great prosperity. And the houses of ivory will all perish. So he's saying, you can't hide at the altar. You can't hide at your, your primary house. You can't hide at your secondary house. You can't hide under your bed. There's no place you're going to hide from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. That's terrifying to me 
where it was before I got a hold of a promise the promise of 1 John 1 9 it says this if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness you know there's another minor prophet named Jonah most of you are familiar with Jonah Jonah went against Nineveh to tell them that God is going to destroy you but did you know that God didn't destroy Nineveh until a couple hundred years later you know why because they heeded the calamity and the warning and didn't see judgment in their time If we hope to not see judgment in our time, we have to recognize this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you need to, I told you I'm talking to believers today. If you need to, won't you grab a hold of this promise? That's my prayer today, that you grab a hold of this promise before the lion roars for you. Because he's coming back one day. And for some of us, it may be before this service is over. We have no promise of anything beyond the second we're living in right now. And so I make the plea that I think Amos is making to the people, that God through Amos is making to the people. Accept the warning accept the calamity forego the judgment because the truth is God chose you he doesn't desire to roar against you let's pray Father God in Jesus name we love you got such heavy words from your word today God I recognize that I have lack that I don't, I don't live my life all the time in the way that glorifies you. God, I ask that you forgive me for any transgression that I've made or committed against you or against your people, any way that I have abused the privilege that you have given me to be called your family. I pray that same prayer over every person in this room. If there's any person here that has allowed themselves to ignore the warning and the calamity. Snatch us. Snatch our conscience by your Holy Spirit to know that there's no hope without you. That when that day of judgment does come, there's no place we can go, no, no plea we can make, no place we can hide. And so God, I just ask that you, you by the power of your Holy Spirit convict us. And where we lack, hold to the truth of your promise in 1 John 1, 9. That you will forgive us and then make us again righteous. We praise you for who you are and we thank you. We thank you for a hard word. Because discipline is necessary for those that we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.